Good morning. Today's reading is from John 4, 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? For Jews had no dealing with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, good morning. Welcome to Christ Community. Um, If we haven't met, my name's Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's an absolute delight to spend some time together with you this morning. Um, But before we continue, let's just ask uh, once again for God's presence and his unique way of speaking through his word when we gather in his name. All right? God, I'm grateful that we get to gather today together and I'm mindful of our brothers and sisters across the globe just consistently experiencing brutal chaos, hearing and thinking of them praying the Lord's Prayer, asking for deliverance, maybe even reading a similar psalm that was read before, maybe thinking through this passage And knowing that the same spirit that is within us, working here, is within them. And so, God, we ask, Lord, for your comfort. We pray for an end to this chaos. We pray for a resolution and freedom for the Ukrainians and a retreat of the Russians in this battle. God, I also pray just for the chaos and an emotional, psychological, personal sense that we bring here just in this space in our own lives, the battles that each person in here is, is waging and uh, sometimes just the courage to wake up and face another day, just a mindful of that, that weight. And so um, I'm just thankful for each person here and thankful for the ways that you brought us together in the name of Jesus. So we anticipate the work of your spirit. We come humbly recognizing that um, we're just... We're grasping after the one who's grasped a hold of us. (laughs) And uh, we're just thankful for this space. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, Well, hey, so here's the deal. Uh, You know, Allie and I, we've been married for almost 12 years. And we talked, I talked to her about, I'm going to tell you a little story about us, uh, a little struggle we have. We think it's important uh, that the longer someone who's following Jesus and people who are in married relationships share those areas where they have frustration and struggle. And 
Um, and I asked for her permission to tell this story like twice, um, just so you know. Some of you are like, did you even ask her? It's like, yeah, like half the time she helps me write these sermons, just if you're curious. Uh, I run all this stuff by her, and she's like, don't say that, or say this, you know. So if there's something you really like, more than likely it's more from Allie than it is from me. So, um, no, but here's an area where even coming on 12 years of marriage, where Allie and I probably have some of our greatest frustrations, some of our most heated arguments, it's when we go, uh, go get groceries. <laughs> I know some of you are like, what's the big reveal? Okay, here it is. Uh, groceries. Because um, here's the deal. We're just different people. Um, Allie and I will work on like the, the grocery list. We'll look in the cupboards. We'll look in the fridge. We'll try to write it out beforehand. We'll even sometimes be in the car together uh, going to the same grocery place, right? And we're like, oh, yeah, we forgot about this. Let's put it on the list. But there's something that categorically shifts in me and categorically shifts in her the moment we step into the place where you get groceries. For me, um, I walk into a grocery store and I've got the list. And that is the thing I'm after, is the list, full stop. Like, let's go and figure out the most efficient way to get out of here. Um, I do not like grocery stores. Um, yeah, so there's that. We're, so that's what I'm after. I'm after the things that we said we were coming to get. Allie comes in and she is looking after, she's looking for an experience, categorically different, okay? We've, once again, we brainstormed the list together, but she comes in and she's thinking, oh, we're going down this aisle, I forgot about this thing, or we might need this, you know, there's this event happening in two weeks, we're probably going to need this, and seeing that thing made me think of that. Very different experiences that leads to some significant heated discussion as to we were supposed to be on here only 30 minutes, and here we are an hour. Um, I feel like a failure. She feels like it's a victory, okay? <laughs> we, we have not, we've walked through it. We came in there thinking that we were after the same thing. <laughs> in some ways, we were. And this is not throwing shade on my wife. 99% of the time, we, if we didn't walk out with the thing that she remembered when we walked down the aisle, we'd be in trouble, like because of an event or something along the, so major props to her. We just, it's just that we walk in there thinking, we're looking for the same thing, but we're looking for very, very different things. And that's true for everyone, right? Everyone is after something, every single one. The question is, is, is are we after the same things or are we after different things? We may even have the same language, but using different dictionaries, right? You, you may experience this in work relationships with colleagues, right? You're working towards a similar objective in your work office, but then you realize that you're using the same words, but it, it looks very different in the outcome. Um, you see this with roommates. You both have an ideal of doing the dishes, but what does that mean, right? Uh, or friendships and so on. Everyone's after something, but are we actually after the same thing. And, and for the follower of Jesus, the question that should be front of mind, and especially is for us as we gather together today, is what is Jesus after? What is Jesus after? Um, when God became flesh, when the Word became human, what is He after? And how does he go about getting what he's after? Actually, in the text that was just read for us, something that's really fascinating is that in John chapter 4, verse 3, it says, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. This word, it's actually one word, you know, had to. Like, it's the same word as like the must that we saw earlier. It's this divine determination. Other people went around Samaria. There were paths you could go that went around that area. And we'll get to why that is the way that that is. 
But Jesus instead had to. There was no other option. There was something that Jesus was after there in Samaria. And we're going to get a window into what Jesus is after. And therefore, too, as people made in the image of God who called by his grace to follow after him what we are to be after as well. And hear me, if you're a follower of Jesus or you've been walking with Jesus for a while, this is a good litmus test, okay, as to whether or not you're after what Jesus is after. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, man, you picked a great Sunday to be here as well because you're going to get a good insight as to what Jesus' followers are to be after. And you say, hey, am I after those things? Do I want to be after those things? Is this something that I want to be a part of? Is this someone I want to, to follow? And here's what's also really wonderful about this story. Interestingly enough, it's a story of failure, which for me is really encouraging because I constantly come to the text and feel like a failure, okay? So this, when I come to this and I see that people who are these first followers of Jesus who are supposed to get it and they don't, I'm like, okay, I'm not alone. They're, they're discerning what Jesus is after too. So, so we have permission to grow and to fail. And what's so astounding is that what Jesus is after just blows their categories, these early followers of Jesus. So let's take a look together. If you haven't already, would you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 4? So if you're looking in the, the, what's called the New Testament, you go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. He's the fourth eyewitness kind of account that we're given of the person and work of Jesus. And we're going to jump into verse 6 here in the passage that was read for us. We're actually going to go all the way down to verse 42, so buckle up, okay? It's a longer story, a little bit longer in the text together. But when we jump into verse 6, we see that Jesus, right? And this is something that's just encouraging to me. He comes to a well because he's tired. This is the Son of God. Once again, Word Made Flesh is the series that we've entitled this out of John chapter 1, verse 19. And he's weary. He's exhausted. He's been walking, and it's about noon. So it's the heat of the day, and he comes to a well, and he sits down. And who comes up to the well but a woman coming in the middle and the heat of the day? And this is actually a pretty dynamic scenario, okay? So when we read that, we might come with 21st century ideals and think to ourselves, there's nothing going on here, of course. Okay, you've got a guy sitting by a well, and now you've got a woman who's coming to the well. But we need to understand and enter into the original context. These original readers, as John is recording this experience, this account of Jesus engaging this woman and this woman engaging Jesus, this would have come with so much taboo, they would have had goosebumps the moment they read it. Women and men did not engage alone like this very often. It was an extreme taboo for a single man, Jesus, and this woman to be meeting in the well where there was no one else. You see, the disciples that were with Jesus, they went into the town. We see to go get lunch. We'll find that out later. But here at this well, which is Jacob's well, which we'll come back to later as well, this woman comes. And this comes with a whole host of risks in terms of how it's perceived in that cultural climate. And she's alone. And that's actually really important, too. It's interesting because she's coming in the middle of the day at noon. Now, most scholars agree that, and if you still look across cultures, 
Most people won't go. If you have to walk to go get water, she's coming with her jars. You're not going to go if you're thinking to be strategic as these towns would have and they had processes and pathways to go and make this little journey in the hottest part of the day to go get water. Almost everybody got up early and went to the well during the cool of the day to gather their water. But she is alone in the heat of the day. And secondarily, she's alone. That's also another indicator as to something unique happening here. She's alone. Normally, women would travel together for safety due to vulnerability in this particular diamond. And the watering hole was literally the watering hole. It was the place where they caught up. It's where they made connections. It's the place that ideas were shared or community information was gleaned so that families could be tethered together and they could care for one another in a community dynamic. She's clearly isolated. We don't know whether yet, if that's her choice or others, but she's alone and it's an awkward time of day and she comes up to Jesus and she's weighed down. She's got her jar. Something's going on. We've come to see that she's the outcast of outcasts, the lowest of the low there in this Samaritan community. And yet Jesus knows all this, as we'll come to discover and he understands the dynamics of their interpersonal kind of conversation. And still, this is so important, it was very uncustomary for a guy to speak first. But Jesus does. He says, give me a drink. Now, for you, you might be thinking, that's ridiculously rude. <laughs> you know, this guy sees this woman coming, he's like, hey, give me a drink. Like, this feels like chauvinism, like 101. But that is not the way it was perceived in this cultural moment. Instead, Jesus is basically extending an olive branch. This is a place to open up communication. It's a way of saying, I see you, and he's also coming in weakness. Do you see this? It's not with strength where he's coming up with great bravado. He's exhausted sitting by the well, and he's like, can you give me a drink? <laughs> I'm in need. What an extraordinary posture to approach someone, especially someone who's coming in vulnerability to the well. And like I said, this was risky on a cultural level. There was a whole bunch of taboos. Most who were very religious would have seen this as unwise at best, unholy at worst, um, and definitely putting Jesus' reputation at risk because this is the catalyst for all kinds of narratives that could have gone out in a highly traditional tribal context where mor morality was set at the ultimate highest here, okay? And so Jesus, knowing all of this, he still asks her, for water. And she's even flabbergasted by this, right? You see it there in the text. She's like, you, a Jewish guy, are asking me for water from my jar? Because listen, just for Jesus to put his lips on the jar that she brought could make him ceremonially unclean, could make him unclean to engage worship and other aspects. And Jesus says, oh, <laughs> if you knew who it was that was asking you for a drink, actually, you'd be asking me for a drink because I have water that you know not of. I have water that is like way better than this water. It, it'll actually fill you up. It's living water. It's not like this stagnant water at the bottom of this well, but it's like the rushing cool water of the river. And I love that this woman is such a realist. You know, it's like, and it doesn't matter if it's a man, a man or a woman. You'd look at Jesus and you're like, bro, what are you talking about? She's like, you don't have a jar. I don't see any other water. Like, I'm the local here. You're the newbie. And I don't know of any other place to get water. 
And then she goes one step further. She highlights, so you saw this in the text, that this is the well that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Okay, so Jacob is this guy, old, old, old in history, that's recorded in the book of Genesis. He's the one who actually provided this well. It's become a common marker, actually, for Samaritans and Jewish people. He was a patriarch, so this father of the faith. And she goes, Jacob gave us this well. I mean, this is one of our guys. This is one of the primary folks that pass on the faith in which God worked. And you're saying that what you have to offer is better than what Jacob has to offer? And then Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water, right, is going to be thirsty again, but I've got water. If you're really curious, you'll never be thirsty again, ever. (laughs) I love her response. and She's almost full of cynicism. She's like, okay, well, give me the water, you know? (laughs) Are you talking a big game over here, sir? Um, I know these parts. I'm I'm really loving to see how you're going to deliver this. Um, I don't have to be thirsty anymore. I don't have to come out here in the middle of the day by myself any longer. So why don't you give me what it is you say you have? And this is what is so astounding. So Jesus is like drumming up this desire for water, and in many ways, like the astute Nicodemus, she's also very astute, and she takes Jesus very literally. If you remember back in John 3, Nicodemus is like, oh, I have to be reborn? How on earth does that happen? She's coming with the same framework in a very literal context, like, well, give me this literal water so that I'm never physically thirsty again. And then suddenly Jesus just like takes a hard turn, and he says the thing. He says the thing that just frankly feels so outlandish, you know, he's kind of been drumming up this desire for water. And she's like, finally give it. And he goes, yeah, go ahead. What do we see here in the text? Verse 16, go call your husband and come here. And you're like, what? Where's your emotional intelligence, Jesus? Like, this is, this is ridiculous. You're like meddling in people's marital lives. You're, but Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. It seems extremely shocking. And you just kind of sit in the weight of what Jesus did in this hard turn. Because then the woman answers, and even in the Greek, it almost seems really curt, very short. She says, I have no husband. And then Jesus responds with, that's right, you've had five. And you're actually living with a guy right now that's not your husband. So and once again, in a very traditional context where morality is set and by the community and the Mosaic law, like this is extremely scandalous. And then she just goes, well, I see you're a prophet. <clears throat> <laughs> now, I want to I highlight this because here's what Jesus isn't after. And this is actually really important. See, Jesus isn't after our nice facade. He's not. He's willing to say the thing. Now, I also want to highlight here in this text, there are certain things we're not sure of, okay? And we can go too far one way or the other. Sometimes people will come to this text and say that, that this woman was exclusively promiscuous, which is actually not a good awareness of the historical context because only men could divorce their wives in this context, all right? But then we can also swing the opposite side when she was only a victim. The reality is, is we don't know, and John doesn't clarify that for us in the text, he lets us sit in the mess. <laughs> Whether, and probably part, it's probably partially true on both sides. 
There's probably a part she has to play because later on, what does she say? And this is a bit of a teaser. We're going to get to that eventually, but I'm just going to say it for this point. She goes, come and see the man who's told me everything I did. There's a deep ownership there that she proclaims, okay, about herself and her interaction with Jesus. But there's also victim dynamics here, of course, underplay. In this. So we're not exactly sure of all the elements of the story, but we do understand how the community would have seen her with this many, five marriages, and now living with a man that she's not married to. She would have been a social pariah, an outcast. There's no doubt. A whole bunch of stories would have easily circulated throughout the town and how she was perceived and how she was engaged. And Jesus, check this, he knew all of this about her. And doesn't that communicate the level at which Jesus will step into our world? He's not an avoider either. He doesn't just say the good things. He steps in there and goes right after shame. (laughs) In a way, that is astounding to me. He goes right after the area of brokenness. And he switches from talking about water, you know, and Jacob, and buckets, and wells, to talking about the stuff in our past that we want to keep in the past, even though it continues to impact our present. He goes to talking about the stuff we want to just keep hidden or just move on from or keep under a rug or back in a corner or in a closet because we just don't have the emotional energy to navigate why we keep going back to that. He goes to the stuff that is full of our shame and he goes right there. He says, go. Why don't you go grab your husband and come here? I don't have a husband. You're right. Here's where you are, and I'm not walking away. You see, Jesus, he's not after our nice facade. Instead, he wants to allow us to go and face our shame. And sometimes cultures and nations, they want to build a facade and not look at the painful, shameful things of their past, thinking that that's going to help bring healing. And we as individuals, we can do that too. We can think that, oh, we just need to stop talking about this because the more we keep talking about it, the more pain it's going to cause. And Jesus is like, no, we got to talk about it. We got to talk about it. It doesn't just disappear. It needs to be healed, not ignored. And that, it's categorically different. You see, Jesus doesn't want us to build a facade. He's not after a nice facade. He wants to go right after it in order to bring healing You know, I get an extraordinary email from an extraordinary group every day. It's KC Today. I get this. (laughs) Travis laughs because he's on that team. And it's extraordinary. It's a free, it's amazing. So you get this email, and it gives you, like, hyper-local news. Um, Restaurants that are opening. So if you want to be really hip, like, I'm not, but I can look (laughs) that way now. Um, So if you need, like, a hack on that, they give you hyper-local news about Um, Things that are being voted on or buildings that are being renovated or issues going on in the community or, hey, here's the special deals at happy hour at this one. I mean, it's great. And one of the fun stories they told was about this facade that's here in Kansas City. I never knew about it. I've driven by it multiple times. It's down at Armour in Baltimore. Like, you know that Burger King is down on Maine? It's like just to the west of that, one block over. And you look from the top And you see this storage facility, right? There is this massive storage facility that was built. And to your, how would you look at this? To your right, there's that's Main Street, and there's this big storage facility. 
but this storage facility goes all the way over to the next street. And the, the residents there said, hey, if you build this, you've got to build a facade because we don't want to look at a storage facility in our neighborhood. So they spent some $3 million to build a facade. Why don't we go to the next slide here? Check this out. This is what it looks like. It, it, it looks like apartments. Like you're like, I don't know if any of you are on the housing market, but if you're like, John, I'm like, I wonder if that one's for sale. No, <laughs> you don't want to live there. And there are actually signs that there is no life there. There's nothing, you can't see in the windows. If you keep going down, like I drove there with, with Allie uh, yesterday and we were driving by and it's like literally these houses are awkwardly connected together, but I would have never noticed it. Never. And it was all because even though that is a storage facility, people didn't want to see what was actually there. And we'll pay a lot, whether it be in relational intimacy, whether it be, oh man, just locking, figuring out a whole other aspects of workarounds or coping mechanisms to not actually let people see who we are. Jesus doesn't want us to build these facades and to ignore what's actually there. He wants us to be our full selves and actually not so that he can just baptize our shame, but heal us through it and to see it and to name it. Because then when people are fully seeing the love that we experience, that's the only way it's going to cut to the heart. Well, there's so much going on in this text. On top of that, you have all this wedding imagery that's going on throughout John. I was talking to a friend about that earlier this last week. Again, and, 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 and what you actually see is that wells have this prominent place, specifically in Genesis, where men and women would meet each other and then they would get married. It happens multiple times in Genesis. But then if you go to John 2, what's fascinating, the way that John has organized this particular, his experiences, and you see these threads being played out, is in John 2, what's Jesus' first miracle? His first astounding sign it's at a wedding, and he takes a jar, we're talking about jars today, takes a jar, fills it with water, and it turns it into wine, and there's joy bursting at the wine. You get to John chapter 3, and there's John the baptizer, and he's like, hey, 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 I'm not the groom. That guy over there, Jesus, the one I pointed out, he's the groom. My job was to get the, brides, the bride ready. I'm just a groomsman. And then we come to, to John chapter 4 to a well. And Jesus meets a woman who in some sense, for any number of reasons, has gone to the well again and again and again, longing for someone to be who she longs for them to be. And Jesus, as he's looking for his bride, the people that will be his, that he will fully see, that he will redeem and call his own, he sees this woman that this whole community has ostracized. And he says, I see you, I know you, and I'm here. And I'll finally be the one you've been looking for. Not in a romantic sense, but something deeper and a belonging and love to be a part of a people anchored with him. All of this imagery coming together. And it just continues to get teased out. And of course, what is she doing but bringing a jar? The same jars that Jesus, in many ways, it's different jars, but a jar nonetheless where Jesus has come to fill her up as well. But we don't drop our facades very easily. People can say things like this. Oh, you know, Jesus isn't interested in our facade. And we say, yeah, 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 but. And what's astounding is that even here, I mean, she's so brilliant theologically. 
that she leans hard the moment that her personal experience is at center stage. She redirects the conversation to theological abstraction. <laughs> That's Christianity 101 for some folks. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. This is getting too personal. Let's talk about big ideas that actually, you know. No, wait, wait, wait. And she's like, hey, hey, you're a Jewish guy. I'm a Samaritan woman. We have these debates around these two mountains. Which mountain are we supposed to worship on? So let's, let's talk about these big picture things instead of my personal life, shall we, please? And she skillfully guides the conversation. And this is where I want to tap into just a little bit the difficulty or the animosity, the ethnic animosity between Samaritans and Jewish people. You see, around 722 BC, there was this really brutal uh, people group called the Assyrians. And I mean, when I say brutal, they would take over town, skin people alive, I'm going to say something. They would anally impale you and light you on fire in order to intimidate other communities so that when they showed up, you would just surrender. I mean, whoa, right? Well, they take over the northern kingdom of Israel, and then they bring in more Assyrians to actually live in this northern kingdom. And the Jewish people who are there actually engage in marriage with the Assyrians that are there, and they begin to have intermingled worship of various gods that shape diverse kinds of culture that are actually informed by these religious practices of death. And then along the way, the Samar they become what is called the Samaritans, a mixture of these Assyrians and these theological beliefs and the Jewish people and Jewish beliefs. And then they kind of stop there because they no longer accept anything in the Old Testament past Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those first five books of Moses. But the Jewish people down the south, they experience and embrace all Genesis through Malachi. And they believe that they are to still worship there in the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, whereas the Samaritans who never felt comfortable going back down to Jerusalem set up their own place of worship in the Mount Gerizim. And so these two mountains, and they actually were at war at each other a couple times, betraying each other. This came this deep racial and ethnic hatred between these two people groups. And so these mountains aren't just about worship. And sometimes when we hear worship, they're like they're gathering together singing on a Sunday. No, 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 no. Worship for them was all of life. These two mountains came to encapsulate two kinds of life. And she brilliantly says, which mountain, Jewish man? Hoping he'll say Jerusalem and then she can say Mount Gerizim and now she can dismiss him. It's a long route to really avoid what's going on in her own life and heart and mind with deep theological questions still there, but we can't discount the personal as well. And what Jesus says that's so brilliant here in the text, he's like, listen, it's about neither of those mountains. What? That is, because <laughs> what she doesn't know is that earlier Jesus clears the temple, right? That was back earlier in John. And he says that my body is now going to be the temple. And what does he say? It's those who worship God in spirit and truth. That's what it is. When your whole life is centered on worshiping him. And what does John the baptizer say? Once again, there's a lot of interweaving themes that are coming up here. John the baptizer says, I've come to baptize with water, but Jesus has come to baptize with the spirit. So this isn't Jesus saying, just look elsewhere. He's saying, God's doing something through me and I've got the spirit. And if you want to worship him, you got to, you got to worship him in spirit that I give and truth. And then she goes, but yeah, 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 there's a Messiah that's going to come. The one who's really going to take care of all this. When he gets here, he's going to figure it all out. And then Jesus just lands the plane in verse 26. And he says, I who speak to you am he. And it lands. And now there's no facade for either. Jesus 
lets her know that he sees all of her and he's staying. But now she sees all of him and realizes the importance of the one who's staying. They see each other for who they are. And there's power in that intimacy, that vulnerability, and that beauty. And then she realizes he came to her. Because <laughs> here's the other thing. Jesus doesn't go to the leader of the town. He doesn't go to the people who have influence in the town. He goes to the one who goes at the only time she can go because nobody's going to give her those death glares when she goes to the well. And that's the one that Jesus reveals himself to. The one that everybody else wanted to write off. The one that everybody else wanted to ignore. For any number of reasons, Jesus says, I see you and I'm here. Just sit in the beauty of that. And in one sense, we want to end the story there and just say, Jesus saw her. He's receiving her. He's communicating in many ways, going right after her shame, not just not to bury her in her shame, but actually to heal her through her shame and extend grace in her shame and to say, hey, there's a space for worship for you too to know the Father. I'm here and I've come to you. Out of all the people I could have come to, come to I've come to you. That's beautiful. But we can't end the story there because that's not where the story ends. Because what happens next is you kind of have this split screen in many ways. Because she leaves and she runs to the town. She goes into the town and she's like, you can just imagine the excitement. The, Come, see the one who's told me everything I ever did. Well, it's like, that's weird. Um, a lot of us know what you did, but it's fascinating that you're really excited about it. Let's, yeah, let's go see what this is all about, right? <laughs> Come see the one who's told me everything I ever did. She goes back into town. And at this time, the disciples are coming back. And what's so fascinating in the text is that you get an insight to some of the questions they're asking. Like, why is Jesus meeting with this woman? What was he seeking from her? That's right there in the text. They're, those are those, their questions. They also are coming with some ethnic superiority around this dynamic. Why is he talking to this Samaritan woman? Why is he engaged with her at this well when we were away? And they've got all these questions. And then Jesus, he's standing there and they said, hey, Jesus, we went in and we got lunch. We've got some lunch. Do you want some bread? And he's like, no, thanks. <laughs> and listen, these are the ones, so these are Jewish followers of Jesus. They're reading the whole Bible, Genesis through Malachi. They're worshiping in the right place, supposedly in Jerusalem. They've followed the one true Messiah. They've given up a lot to be there with him, but they don't get what Jesus is after. They miss it. They have no idea. They're coming with skepticism where Jesus is met with excitement. And in verse 32, Jesus is saying, hey, I've got food you know nothing about. And they're like, once again, it feels like the Samaritan woman all over again. They're like, where did, where did you get food? Like, I don't, I don't understand. And then in verse 34, Jesus says, you know, what, you know what fills me up? It's doing the will of the Father. And it's having a conversation with this woman who was outcast and now brought in. This is what's filling me up. This is what's exciting me. This is what I've come to do. And it has everything to do with this Samaritan woman. You see... They went in to the town to get bread. She goes into the town to get the town. <laughs> and she comes back. The people who should have known better completely miss it. And this woman 
who is an outcast, who came with so much shame, is now feeling freedom to actually go with vulnerability and actually name it before all the people who were perceived as her enemies, the people who were looking down on her. Now she comes with courage and says, you got to meet the person who's filled me up. And what's so fascinating is when she runs to the town, it's a little tidbit in the text, she left her jar behind. The thing she came to fill up again and again and again, she no longer needed. That is a beautiful picture She's been filled up and she's bubbling up with that living water and people are like, I want what she's got. I'm so curious. But the disciples are still hungry and they think Jesus is as well. And here's what Jesus is after. Jesus, he's after everyone, even them. Look at verse 35. He says, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. You see, almost can imagine the, the Samaritan woman bringing the whole town and all these people are coming up over the hillside to the well. And Jesus is like, there's the harvest, guys. There it is. They're ready. Look again. It's the people you want nothing to do with. It's the person that everybody else has pushed out. And they're the ones where the harvest is richest. If you'll just open your eyes, this is what I've come to do. I didn't just come exclusively for the Jewish people. Yes, for the Jewish people, but for the world. Everyone, even them, your enemies, idolaters, adulterers, those who are the outcasts, those who are the hidden, those are the ones that are overlooked. I've come to see them. And what's so fascinating to me, this is just a side note, is that when this woman becomes a follower of Jesus, she doesn't stop becoming a Samaritan. It's not that she becomes completely falling in line with Jewish orthodoxy either in practice. And this is just, this is one of those early seeds that are planted that's later played out in the book of Acts where the people of God genuinely become a diverse community where you have Jewish folks and Samaritans and Gentiles coming together, yes, with different cultural representations, but the same Jesus cultural frameworks for being. They're not all eating kosher, but they're, yes, coming to the same Jesus that has made them whole and clean and this is all planted here. There's a lot that doesn't change in her life. Her morality, if that was an issue, if we look across the gospel accounts, those who come to Jesus, their lives do look categorically different in that particular area. But not necessarily her cultural dynamics. And if we look at this story, as much as I want to see myself in the Samaritan woman and experiencing his grace, I'm much more like the disciples. And where we see ourselves, we need a realignment after what Jesus is after. And if this becomes kind of an acid test as to whether or not we're after what Jesus is after. They, once again, they knew all the right stuff, but they completely missed what Jesus was doing in the moment. Completely missed it. And it was a whole lot of dynamics at play. You know what Jesus is not after? He's not after a nice facade. He's not after an overly defensive spirit that constantly is saying, well, I didn't do that, I didn't do that. It's not, he's not after a posture where we're constantly trying to put others down to feel okay. It's not, he's not after a community that all looks the same and experiences him the same. He's not after a whole host of things. But the question that every one of us should come to is, are we at a spot where we can lay out our shame? where he's met us in the spots where we're finally honest about our areas of brokenness 
and he sees us there. And then those areas of shame don't just become one and done hidden aspects, they become part of our very witness. Where we come to others and we too can say, look, come meet the one who said everything that I've done. Can we do that? Can we humble ourselves and be honest about our own brokennesses and the areas in which Jesus is meeting us? And we say, come and meet him. And all the areas that I, I'm still, because listen, everybody knows, everybody else knows we're broken. And sometimes we forget as followers of Jesus. And instead of looking at other people who are also broken and seeing them as obstacles, whether they're your enemies at work, your frenemies at work, those people that annoy you to death, what if, what if, what if? Those are the ones that God is saying, hey, I want you to go and name your shame with them and say, hey, this is where I'm broken. This is where I'm messed up. God's still working on me. That's the God I want you to know too. Not the one where, hey, I've got it all figured out. Oh, your life's all messed up because you haven't met Jesus. And it's like, hey, I've got shame. I've got issues. And I, Jesus, the more he knows me, the more I see myself, the more I see areas of growth, not because I've become so pitiable that I'm constantly stuck in my own muck and mire, but instead I can be honest about my areas of brokenness and my need of growth. And that's what I'm also going to bring into my witness with you and to say, hey, hey, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have it all figured out. Will you help me? Come alongside of me and let's walk with Jesus together. Come see the one that's, that's bringing life to me. And so when that happens to us, it starts to shape our identity and our posture with folks such that you can approach the people who have wounded you at work or the people you've wounded at work and come with honesty about shame and heartache and pain. How has it shaped the way you approach the conversation around racial reconciliation and racial justice? Are we able to be honest about our shame and the dynamics of our context? If you engage your political enemies, the people who see things differently, how do you approach them on social media? Like all of these spaces where we come with shame and we're ready to trample rather than ready to name our shame and invite them to a Jesus that's actually inviting us to common grace. Really, the question I'm asking you is, have you met Jesus like this? Like this Samaritan woman? Because Jesus upholds her and he says, she's got it. This unlikely, unlikely character becomes the heroine of this story. And the discipleship, the disciples like metaphor for what it means to follow him and do his work. Can you name your shame without hiding instead of building another facade? And so redirecting the conversation Lay down your rhetorical weapons and just let him meet you and embrace you and see your shame and walk with you through it. Because listen, if you have, then you'll be after who Jesus is after, which is everyone. <laughs> everyone. I mean, when people engage with you, do they walk away like these folks do, these other Samaritans at the end of verse 42, they say, listen, we came because you had a testimony. We came to explore him, but then after we spent time with him, we've come to realize he's the savior of the world. And it all started with a woman who was honest about her shame and pointing to the one who is meeting her in it. You know, the number one reason why we continue to be radically racially divided is because we're unwilling to step in the mess and own collective aspects of pain and heartache in the past that continue to impact the present. One of the primary reasons almost every sociologist, Kinnaman and so on, like they'll highlight why skeptics 
are discouraged and leaving the church or disengaged from the church is because they come to the church and they find hypocrites. And listen, everybody's a hypocrite. If you're human, you're a hypocrite. The difference is Christians think they're not. And we, you know, we act like we've got it all. We feel like we've now got the religious infrastructure that we can look down our noses at everyone else instead of coming with our shame and saying, look at me, who am I? Jesus has come for me. Isn't this amazing? I'm growing. You want to grow with me? There are too many people who call themselves Christians that are trying to fight to get people to go up a certain mountain. And instead, we just need to come to Jesus. And you know what happened? Well, maybe just maybe we'd have more people who have genuine questions who would feel safe to wrestle with them here. If that were the case, we maybe just maybe we'd have people who have significant doubts and would say, oh, this is a place I bring my shame, not a place that I hide it. Maybe just maybe this would be a place people who are hurting so much don't feel like they need to plaster a smile, don't need to be something they're not, but can just come and say, Jesus, tell me all that I've done so that I can experience your grace down there. And, and I, I think that would continue to transform our community to that we'd have people from different backgrounds, different orientations, different cultural backgrounds, different racial backgrounds, different socioeconomic dynamics that would really start to find safety and beauty in this because our life, the life we have in Christ would bubble up even though we are jars of clay and cracked cisterns ourselves. Wouldn't that be beautiful? And listen, church, y'all are good at this, okay? I'm preaching a message that I need to hear for me and we need to hear because we have room to grow because we have not arrived, but I'm also really proud of you at the same time because I think y'all do a great job at this. I really do. But may we continue to grow, right? May we be more of this by the power of the spirit that Jesus himself offers to us if we come thirsty. This is what Jesus is after. Everyone, even you, even me, even them, are you, are we? Let's pray. Let's pray. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to actually end our time in these 90 seconds for those who don't know Jesus. It's E90 is what we've called it. We're engaged in a 90-day journey, praying for nine people, 90 seconds a day, and even carving out 90 seconds in our service to do that. But here's what I want to invite you to do. As you're thinking about those nine folks, ask that God would reveal to you how you can come to them, how God needs to grow you so you can say, come and see all that Jesus has told me I've done, to come with humility rather than arrogance, to come with brokenness and honesty rather than a facade. Spend some time praying there. And if you don't have nine people in mind, then ask that God would continue to create in you this kind of posture for the people that are around you that he would reveal those nine in conversation this week. Let's do that together. 90 seconds.
Lord Jesus, you've gone ahead of us. Heavenly Father, you've made yourself approachable to us in Christ and Holy Spirit. You are guiding our steps. You're working in our hearts while you're also working in the hearts of those who don't know you. Both must be necessary in the midst of witness. God, continue to work in us to be genuine vessels of that life-giving water that our cracks might not be hidden, but be a testament to the power of the life that we have in Christ.